Welcome to the Red Review podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Hello, mate. How are we doing? I'm good, actually. Busy, busy start to the week. Um, long, long days at the moment with a couple of international things. But no, I'm good. How about you? Same. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm pretending to be Mike Reader at the moment. I'm actually working on some bids and doing some real work. It's a bit mad. <laughs> oh, gosh. We talked about that last week, didn't you? Keeping your hand in. I think, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. It yeah. is, it is. Um, but the problem is when you're a consultant, you don't have much sphere of influence on things and you tend to get bought in later in the day. So you can't sort of be the master of your own destiny, as it were. Uh, so, yeah, it's a long-handed way of saying you end up with really difficult stuff to review or do or whatnot. But anyway, it's, yeah. Yeah, at, least, at least you can add some value anyway. I think that's um, even when we're not leading. Um, when you're in the team, you can, if you need to, you can step up, can't you, and take it on. Um, yeah. Whereas as a consultant, I'm doing a bit at the moment um, in uh, somewhere in um, Asia, a different one to the Hong Kong one. Oh, the dog got the. Um, <laughs> he's got his toy. Can you hear him in the background? Um, yeah. I'm doing this bit in Asia, and we're not the lead, and we're in, we're a minority in the joint venture. And we got to last week and I was like, I've had enough. And kind of basically just took over. And I was like, right, you're doing this. You're doing that. This is what we're doing. We've got a week to go. Get it, you know, we need to get it sorted. And, and like, you can do that even if you're not leading, right? You just take over and do it. But yeah, um, yeah. as a consultant, you can't. But, they, but the, our partners brought someone in today. Someone described them as, essentially, it's the company's work version of you, Mike. And I was like, oh, is that a compliment? And they went, yeah. They're very, uh, uh, say their gender, they're very forthright. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oi. Sorry, the, sorry, listeners and Jeremy, the dog has decided right now he's not played with the squeaky toy for weeks. He wants to play with the squeaky toy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I, I, can, I can feel your pain. Um, must be challenging. I tell you what, it's probably what our reviewers go through. When we bring external reviewers in, you know, and they particularly when they go through round like two or three rounds of review, and they're just like, "Just do what I told you, and you'll, I'll tell you it's fine." And you, you kind of, you kind of battle with them, and yeah, um, I think they agree with you. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to be careful what I say because this piece of work, what the the bigger of the bidding pieces of work I'm currently doing, uh, is as a result of a listener of the podcast contacting me. Uh, ultimately, so. Um, yeah, they probably will listen to this when, when they're not working on their massive bid that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, so I have to be careful what I say. Um, I, I think they will uh, get there in the end. Uh, the, but the other, the other challenge for me, of course, is because I teach this stuff now. Yeah, I've, I've got to be whiter than white, haven't I? I've got to go back and follow my own rules and all oh, that yeah. sort of stuff. So, yes, it's, thought, a, it's like a double pressure. I've always thought, like, actually, when I look back, no bid have ever, like, perfectly followed the process. Um just because you, you never do, do you? Because of the no uh, shit happens and you know stuff gets in the way and whatnot. Um, well, but yeah, I, I had to get my actual proper sort of rule book out and check that I was doing all the right things. But anyway, so we're talking about procurement challenge today, and I think we should go straight into it because we're going to take a quick pause now while I go and hang the dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so shall we have shall we have a chat around uh, procurement challenges and our views on them? Yeah, play the jingle, my friend. 
So, Mike, we're going to have a chat about challenging procurements. Uh, so this has come off the back of a LinkedIn post uh, that I slightly naughtily did, perhaps in a small fit of rage uh, the other day. I can't remember what day it was. Um, so basically, um, I saw some lawyers uh, putting some advice out there on how to challenge procurements where clients had single sourced basically stuff for the response to COVID. Um, and I thought they were being douchebags. So did a post about it. And I don't know whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do because people have different views about challenging procurements. But yeah, my, so we, we can have a, a chat about that, I guess. But it's kind of the, the context that I, I've been, you know, talking to my friends at YPO um, and other procurement people about the, the severe pressure they're under in the response to COVID um and you know ppe and body bags and all of that sort of stuff that's going on at the moment that the public perhaps don't see um which is very unpleasant and then you get you know lawyers posting stuff like that so perhaps it was a bit bit red mist but anyway it, it sparks an interesting debate um both covid related and and uh, but wider first i guess so um in terms of experiences of of challenging procurements what what does it entail i guess um yeah so i said so just on your the context i guess your post was very about a very specific specific issue which we'll talk about later because actually fundamentally i do think bidders should have the right to challenge um and generally i think it's done in the right way and there are obviously you know high profile cases like you know you obviously see people talk about virgin healthcare mm. suing the nhs or there was the big failed procurement by Magnox a few years ago, which cost the taxpayer well, well over a hundred million pounds um, in the the kind of I think it was like a, a ten year or twenty year outsourcing deal to deal a lot, deal with a lot of the waste. Um, but um, no, I, I I kind of have a view that you should have the right to do it. A procurement team should be aware you've got the right to do it, and. I don't think it should be taken lightly. And I think I think the thing is people think it is an easy thing to do. You just decide to challenge and you challenge. But actually, having been through it a couple of times, you have to be absolutely certain because if you if you withdraw or you you lose, you become liable for the costs of the essentially of the client if you're the if you're the bidder challenging. So it does entail quite a lot of work. And and just to give a an example from a couple of years ago, you know, you obviously you get your standstill letter. And let's, let's see we're challenging after the tender rather than during, because you can obviously challenge mm -hmm. during as well. And there's, there's time, um, um, that kind of caveat, we're not legal professionals, so there's no legal advice here, but there's, there's time bars on when you become aware of an issue, when you can raise it. But assuming you, you wait till the award's done and then you raise it during the standstill period, there's only, A, there's only certain things you can recover, depending on what you recover during standstill or after standstill's finished. But secondly, you've got to be absolutely certain and it, it's expensive. You know, you've got to have real... Um, justification for doing it, a proper legal case under like, you know, under under law, the client hasn't followed the process. Um, they set out the tender process um, and uh, it's expensive. You know, you think like a QC's opinion, which you probably want to get before you put anything to the courts, has probably cost you close to £10,000 at least for like a couple of days work. Um, plus, you know, you're probably having your lawyers, instructing your lawyers, probably another £20,000, £30,000 of their time writing letters and advising you and that sort of stuff. So it's not a cheap process before you even get to the courts. Um, 
and I, I did go on a training thing a few years ago that I think Sixfold International put on, and they did suggest that actually not many challenges, if any, result in overturning the decision either. Mm. the client will cancel the procurement so you end up having to re-go through all the bid again or you could possibly recover um just your bidding costs which i suppose you, you'd get some money up you're still not, you're still not going to get the contract at the end of the um at the end of the period and the chances are if it's a renewal you'll just keep the incumbent in place so you, you potentially don't benefit long term from doing it but it it certainly entails a lot of work and I think it's something that people think you can just chuck a challenge and you do it, but it's not. It's a hell of a hell of a thing to go through. Yeah, agreed. Well, particularly on bigger stuff. Um, and I, I think, well, firstly, there's, there's a difference between properly legally challenging, you know, and just pushing back to the client during the standstill period that they may have got something wrong. I think, obviously, if, if there is something obviously profoundly wrong with how they've scored the tenders, then you've got to raise that. And you would hope any client um, with, with decent morals and integrity would recognise when they've made a mistake in that period without having to get any lawyers involved. Uh, exactly. Obviously, obviously on bigger, and that's that's been my experience. Um, is kind of that level. I've only done the full blown legal stuff once, I think. Um, but the yeah, you regularly see uh, people, you know, pushing back. And so, <clears throat> from my from my perspective. There's a reason why there's a couple of reasons why we've seen much more challenging going on. Um, and then another bit of context, I guess, is, uh, you know, uh, between working at Arcadus and, and working at Mace, I, I worked in uh, the debt recovery enforcement market, uh, which was, I think, the second market after the Virgin West Coast mainline challenge. Um, the, the debt recovery market was the first one that really got into lots and lots of fairly high profile challenges for that market um, to the point where they went through a period of about five years where there were four or five large frameworks that were procured, challenged and then got cancelled to the point really? where, yeah, to the point where the market was beginning to believe that there was never going to be a framework that clients could access us through. And we're going to have to fucking owe you, you know, PQQ and tender every local authority in the country's enforcement contracts, <laughs> which, which did actually happen. So we were submitting 200 page, you know, bearing in mind it's a concession. It's not even, you know, it's the same as an ice cream van in the park. The council doesn't pay for the service. You get paid by the debtors. Um, you know, we were submitting two, 300 page bloody bids for borough councils in the arse end of nowhere. Um, and it was getting ridiculous. Uh, so we, I managed to help the market get out of that eventually with working with YPO actually, um, and, and got a decent DPS, uh, which made it much more difficult for people to challenge in the end. Um, yeah. But it didn't solve all the problems because I don't really like DPSs either because you've got a list of 15, 20 people on there who could all mini bid everything. But anyway, it got us part of the way. But that left me quite scarred by the challenging thing because I was constantly doing these very high pressure. You know, bearing in mind, I was, for the second company, JBW, I was trying to help Jamie sell the bloody firm and we needed you know line of sight to income for the IM and all that stuff. These, these frameworks getting challenged and cancelled was a royal pain in the arse. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the the problem for me is that if we get into sort of habitually challenging these things, um, it just, so procurement people are under more pressure than they've ever been under in the public sector. It's slightly different in the, the private sector. 
Um, you know, I gave that speech at YPO's procurement conference last year with that picture of a um, of a polar bear on a very small piece of ice, and the message was, you know, the sort of "do more with less" phrase that's been banded around through austerity for the last few years. Uh, it's gone too far now. It's you know the, their procurement teams uh, are absolutely cut to the bone, and the last thing they need is the fear of being challenged uh, for no you know for no good reason uh, and having to go through that rigmarole. Um, and so there's there's this kind of cycle that we've got into where procurement people won't gate won't engage with people like me and you to have a really good conversation about what the solution could look like for their future procurement that's a year or two away uh, because they're absolutely terrified of you know putting a foot wrong saying the wrong thing someone finding out it getting challenged and you know the spotlight's on them for wasting a year of the client's time in sorting that category out and getting a tender out and all that sort of stuff so it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we end up in this Mexican standoff with procurement people. Yeah. Um, and that's what really pisses me off because everything I teach in the capture space is about co-creating solutions that create the value for the clients. Cause you know, that the core of that speech that I gave was hold a fucking hackathon, you know, invite the market in way before you ever go near writing an ITT, tell us what the problem is don't tell us what you think the answer is because we're probably five years ahead of you in terms of innovation and you know the market view. So let us come up with some solutions as, as, as a market, as an idea. Um, and I bet you we'll create a lot more value. We'll do it better, faster, cheaper, better outcomes in the public sector, better outcomes for the, the public. Um, but instead we end up with shit specifications being sent out because I didn't ask anyone. Um, and we, yeah. all, we all sit there in a bidders conference knowing we could have done a better job. And I think that's what I, I find guess, really sad. I guess for the hot, you know, for the bespoke stuff, that that concept is is completely right. But I think actually a lot of procurement risk comes in because procurement teams constantly fiddle and tweak with the way they're procuring things. They don't do the mm. same procurement twice. And I have clients who every procurement is different. And so every time they've got different marking schemes, they've got different uh, evaluation weightings, they've got different ways of assessing commercials. And so they must be introducing risk into their process because they've never proven that something works consistently well. They're always tweet, tweet, fiddling and tweaking. And yeah. it's kind of, you know, you can say, well, that's, that's the expertise of procurement. They're constantly refining their processes. But from a bidder's perspective, you just start to see holes in these kind of poorly, poorly conceived things that they're smiling in the market and, and that does in, increase the, the risk of challenge because um you can start to either drive a bus through it through the through the tender stage and you know through purposely raising difficult tqs to get extensions to get um things removed for the tender to to think you know to to rattle the procurement team a bit and you can use particular language to do that or they just puts them at risk because they they end up procuring something that, just, that actually isn't fit for purpose as, as you say yeah. Well, and the thing that, again, that does, coming back the other way, that really pisses me off that clients are just increasing cost of sale um, and they think that that money magics out of nowhere. And again, that conversation with, with that YPO conference was, this is all a zero sum game. If you, if you cost us as bid as more money, we're going to charge you or someone else that money. Um, it, yeah. You know, it doesn't come out. We haven't got a money tree um, to invest in these things. Um, or and or worse one of the bidders goes bust and the people that work for them who live in their community in their local authority 
are out on the street, you know, uh, claiming unemployment. So, um, no, if they just gave us a nice repetitive set of mini bids with the same scoring each time, we can get better and better at it and do, you know, provide better bids, provide better solutions, reduce our cost of yeah. sale and ultimately reduce the price to the to clients. But yeah, I don't know why procurement people do that. It's stupid. It's maybe um, maybe not, but it's it's a funny coincidence, isn't it? So it's the the point is <laughs> the point is it's a small world, isn't it? And my as part of that post, the world is you know clients are made up of human beings, and they people move yeah. about jobs a lot these days. And if you haul them in front of their boss, you know, challenging their procurement, and they get and they particularly if they've done something wrong, but even if they haven't, they get you know duffed up a bit. They're not going to forget that. Uh, next time you go to bid something wherever they are whether it's at that organization or somewhere else um, maybe I, I don't think you've um i don't think you should not challenge if there's a valid reason to challenge oh no yeah yeah oh i agree for the fear of impacting capture um and and actually that's the whole point of a fair procurement process if if there's bias in people's decisions um then they should be challenged shouldn't they and i suppose maybe moving public to private gives you some protection but um i i i don't think uh so i don't i don't think uh, having a difficult procurement impacts on your capture long term and i and I, I i i guess i disagree with you on that point but it's it's interesting isn't it that you, you that you've you've obviously experienced that elsewhere in the market i don't know well, but... I, that would that would spare me on more Oh, that's you. If that's corrupt, that you're making threats about challenge me and you never work here again, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be on it. You know, I'll have you. I'll have you. I'll have your procurement and your job. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm too. I'm too easy going. This is probably. This is probably the episode that gets a lot of trouble because a, with neither of us are procurement people, there's probably loads of procurement people who are now screaming screaming at us uh, and then secondly uh, we're saying all sorts of things we probably shouldn't say on this episode yeah you might have to um, you might have to beep it a bit <laughs> so if if you if you do see a problem with the procurement then how do you think you get a win-win solution i i think you've got well hopefully you've you've done a good enough capture piece that you've you've got the right connections in the client anyway and that actually you've boxed the procurement people off so they are treated like and, and procurement people don't take offence at this, but they are treated as just the governance, just the hygiene, just the admin. Um, and if if you've got all that shaped and boxed away nicely, then you can solve many of these kind of problems because you've got a fairly senior person in the client's organisation sponsoring you, um, and you can have that chat. If you if you're, well, of course, in heavily regulated stuff, public sector stuff, that's much more difficult. These things have become much more procurement led, haven't they? Uh, so in those sorts of scenarios, hopefully you've built a relationship with the procurement people through some sort of dialogue where you can pick up the phone to them and say, hey, look, we've got this problem. Can we find a way through it together? And, uh, but particularly if you take that, it's a bit like when I had that client on, I mentioned on the podcast where we've done a load of work uh, for uh, in capture and then the client went and used a framework we weren't on. We've still given them the work because what goes around comes around. And by yeah. being positive about that, and I think it's the same in this scenario, that if you go with a collaborative, can we work through this detail? Can I come and have a coffee and talk you through where we think there are some, might be some issues that we should clear up? You're much like better, much more likely to get an outcome than getting your lawyers to phone them up and 
write them horrible letters. Yeah, I suppose actually the whatever happens, even if you do send the horrible letters, finding an amicable position that you kind of... Um, I guess it, it depends slightly on how you do it, but actually you can, you can get to a position whereby you will, you can walk away from that process with a we're still with a strong relationship with that client you've done a lot of capture for. Yeah, because someone's got to win it again in four years' time or whatever, if it's a framework, or those procurement people will go and work on the next big mega project and you'll probably be bidding to them again. It's a really small world, you know. I mean, I remember I, I bid and won uh, the QSing on Goldman Sachs headquarters in London where well, I won their global framework for EC Harris. And then I turn up at Mace and they're bidding the fucking construction of the same job. And it's the same procurement dude that I'd faced off to eight or 10 years earlier at, at EC Harris. Um, and having that connection with him um, was so much, it made life so much easier. In my first bid for Mace, I, I had this little golden nugget that no one else in the business had that I, I knew the procurement guy. Um, but, you know, it's only, only because I behaved, that was a really difficult bid both times, actually. Um, and we lost it at Mace, um, but it, it was a lot easier process because I behaved well the first time through what was yeah pretty pretty challenging procurement, very aggressive. Um, um, so we, so after disagreeing as to whether challenge or not is a good thing, we have actually come to a position where we both agree that um, if you're kind of purposely challenging just to just because of sour grapes related to COVID-19 we both agree you're a bit of a knob so uh, I, I think we've kind of come around, come around full circle Jeremy and we can be friends again now. Excellent very good <laughs> well I think that'll be an interesting one to listen back to because we are going to have to beep some of that out <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, that's probably the closest we've got to the wire actually isn't it or beyond so yeah, not good. Sorry, I got carried away. This is the episode that got me fired. Um, yeah. uh, we got a question of the day from Vicky Jackson. And for listeners who have listened to episodes recently, you'll know Vicky from Intelitender. Intelitender. Um, but actually has just moved client side to head up uh, Capture at Serco for one of their business units. So um, congratulations, Vicky, on your new role. Yeah, and a surprise. Didn't get the exclusive on um, the Redview podcast. We interviewed her, but um, nonetheless, it doesn't make that that episode any any less fantastic. Yeah, yeah, very grown up having a real job. Fair play to her. <laughs> Keep your hand in, like we were saying last week. Maybe, maybe you inspired her, Jeremy. Yeah, um, yeah. So, Vicky's question. Um, so, this came from a conversation we were just chatting on um, uh, the other night about uh, kind of great people in bidding and what makes a great person. So. Her, her question was, the top 2% of bid professionals, what's the most important attribute? Learning new skills, having a range of experience, or just plain natural talent? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, so I think my, my natural shooting from the hip answer is what sets great bidding people apart is entrepreneurialism, uh, for want of a better term, perhaps. But they've got that bidding savvy in understanding that it's actually about what value you create for the client and how you help their business be with a competitive edge how you create a competitive differentiator for your client if it's private sector how you create bigger outcomes for communities if it's public sector 
than any of your competition and that your bid is a love letter to that. Uh, but it's that it's that entrepreneurialism, that innovation to drive the edge of the envelope further than any of your competition to the point where your bid is so bloody obvious it's the right answer and you know they they've just got to buy you. That's that's the best bidding people in my view. Yeah. So I, I think it I think there is some whether it's talent, I don't think talent's the right word, but maybe it is. Um but definitely it's the skills beyond just being a bid professional that make a, I think a, an absolutely you know great bid professional whether you're a a writer or a designer or a manager or a you know head of bids any of those it, I think it's beyond just you know knowing the process and having the skills it's beyond just having done bucket loads of bids and have learned you know I've got the scars from failures and losses and things that went wrong I think part of it you're right is the, the differentiator is that additional piece of talent, whether it's entrepreneurialism or a different way of thinking or a different skill set beyond the skills that everyone else has that will set people apart. I, th- I think I think personality comes into it as well. Mm. I've seen a lot of work recently with our um, one of our teams in defence and, and another team in nuclear, and you've heard this term squep a lot skills you know, people use it differently but skills qualification experience and personality behaviors as the p is where we've kind of got to and it's that p i think that does separate the, the behaviors and the personality of the person actually i think it's what turns someone from good to great you have to have the other foundations you can't just yeah. be a great bullshitter no. you've got to have solid skills and and experience and qualifications in in the in the art of bidding but they get those people get fellowship, don't they? And not just by people more junior to them, they they sort of hold the war room. They they have that uh, personality that takes the whole bid team with them, including the more senior people. Yeah, I think I think just to just to end on it, it's something that I'd um, a catch up with. Um, I actually I won't say who, but but um, a relatively senior person in one of the big top tier contractors had a catch up with him not long ago and he said for him the differentiator is that you've got to absolutely love bidding to be a great bid person and you know, mm-hmm. we talk because he I kind of had, had a catch up because he's asking who do I know is in the market and kind of getting some advice on um, you know who to be looking at and who was you know movers and shakers that he might want to approach for his new kind of super bidding team um, and yeah, he said, actually, you know, I'm looking, he was looking for people in particular that just had a love for it because actually it's a really hard job when you're at the top end and you've got to absolutely love it, not just in terms of doing the job, but wanting to improve and develop and live and breathe it. That, and that's what makes the difference um, for a good and a great. And I think, I think that's probably a valid comment as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why I've, I've left full-time employment and became a consultant because I saw that writing on the wall that it's really hard work to be at the top of the game and top of your game and all that stuff all the time. <laughs> I and thought so you were because you don't love bidding. No, no. I, well, I, it's, been, <laughs> it's been nice to have a break. Um, and I certainly <laughs> don't like some bits of it as much as others. But um, yeah, being a consultant's great in some ways because you can do it for a bit and then have a break. And particularly because I've got that spectrum in into capture and the client development stuff and training and all that sort of thing it, it sort of mixes it up a bit because you're right it, maintaining you know leading a bid team or being a bid director and you know, bid in bid out all year long particularly when businesses are under pressure as they are now and are going to be for a while 
is is really hard work, and I'm I'm getting a bit old and tired. Yeah, I'll, I'll put I'll put I'll put the link in the show notes. Just come to me. I did say so years ago. I did a podcast with Passel, who still thank you Passel and thank you David Kirk. Um, host the Short Thoughts blog where we now put all the show notes. So oh, yeah, yeah. Read me. Um, and we were talking about being a workaholic. Um, and I don't really know where we came on to this, but I said, well, actually, we've got to look at it a different way because if we look at an athlete, a, you know, a pro athlete, someone who's absolutely top of their game, you know, we talk about the 2% of sports people in a particular sport, they will live and breathe their sport. You know, their diet, the way they live, the friends they keep, the things they do are all um, designed to make them a better athlete. So why in business do we look down or do we have a kind of a negative view of people who want to do the same for business? You can't, you can't, I don't think, be an amazing bid person and be a super athlete and do this and do that. You, I think you do have to focus down. But genuinely, if like you know, even top 2% of bidders or bid professionals in, the, in your market or in the, even in the world, then actually you have to be kind of completely dedicated to your craft because that's what makes the difference. Yeah, agreed. No, and I still I still don't switch off. Uh, the white George, George was having a go with me about it yesterday. Um, that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about work stuff. It's just I think the trick to it is finding a vocation that you really love, and then it's not work, is it? Um, yeah, and I, and I think that's what I've managed to strike a balance with. Uh, I've I've got a series of things that really interest me. That's part of the reason for starting the business in the first place is to do more of the things I enjoy and that I'm good at, that crossover of that Venn diagram. Um, and I'd like to think I've got a decent decent balance of that. But, you know, I don't, I've, I never have. You know, when I used to go on lads' holidays when I was in my 20s, my mates would wonder why on earth I was staring at whatever the phone of the day was, my Blackberry or whatever it was. Um, you knock your 3310. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Did they even have mobile phones when you were in your 20s? <laughs> oh, <that's harsh. laughs> yeah, phones go. Well, bear in mind, there's a mobile phone in in the first um, Lethal Weapon film. Um, so you know, one of them big brick ones with a battery. Yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah. doubt you got many through that though. I doubt what? Sorry, I lost a. Feed I doubt back. they got you got you got many emails through that brick phone. No, no, no. But uh, yeah, text messages and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well thank you Vicky for the question an interesting one I think it'd be really interesting to hear people's views so perhaps um, we'll put that one out on, on uh, LinkedIn and get some get some views and comments on that one yes uh, a really interesting episode hopefully we've recovered now from what will be um, a slightly curtailed main conversation um, and shall we have a chat about what we're up to and um, the next episode yes go for it We reached the end of episode twenty-eight, Jeremy. Perhaps not quite unscathed, but yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll carry on. <laughs> I, I feel I feel a bit bad um, to all the listeners because essentially you won't hear what we are giggling about. But um, if you if you buy me a beer post COVID nineteen, we might tell you. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we. Uh, yeah. Our views on our views on procurement got a little heated in that conversation, so excuse the beeps and probably some goat noises, which always make a good beep to break things up. <laughs> um, so, anything interesting planned this week? Lockdown is relaxed tomorrow, so you can have more than one walk. 
Yes. Yeah. Although I'm, um, to be honest, just not changing anything. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to be certainly going to anyone's office for a while. Um, but yeah, a little bit more exercise wouldn't hurt, would it? I still can't go to the pub though, so it's all a bit meaningless if you ask me. Um, but there you go. Someone said so, to me. Someone said to me the start. There might be reopening in the next couple of weeks. No chance. No chance. Mm. I, I think the R will go through the roof after this week with people on public transport and all that. I think we'll be getting locked back down. Yeah. Yeah. We shall see. We shall see. But it's all very sad, isn't it? On, uh, on the um, the Nando's sponsored COVIDometer that they've announced. <laughs> <laughs> are you lemon and herb or are you extra hot <laughs> COVID-19? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's quite difficult for me living with a bloody marketeer because you know she she holds her head in her hands every time Boris does anything because it's all comms stuff. I mean, you know the new messaging having a green a green as a colour around the outside. You know what does green tape do? It means go go and do things. You're free, and you're not. So yeah. Anyway, so I've, you know that's you can imagine what I've had to listen to. Um, in, in the last few days with what's going on. But there you go. There's a really interesting chat, I think I probably mentioned it before, Dave Trott, who, in fact, that was the book I sent you that, I, that you still not read, um, <laughs> who, who came up with Catch It, Kill It, Bin It, um, and has been kind of quite critical of some of the government's comms from a comms um, professional perspective. You know, how do you get information across? And, and actually, if you're, um, if people want some context on kind of views from a professional, his Twitter feed has been fascinating to see how someone who lives and breathes mm. that world of kind of information design and public communications and is absolutely top of their game is created one of the most memorable kind of public health messages for a long time kind of perceives the government's messaging. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I did that. I forgot I did that post on LinkedIn, didn't I? Which was a video of one of Boris's posts on Facebook, and it takes thirteen seconds of video to scroll from one end of his post to the other. There's that much text that no one's ever going to mm. read. Uh, but anyway, um, so that's yeah. It's, it's interesting as people are bidding people. In effect, we're comms people of a different flavour. It's uh, yeah, it's been interesting to see. Um, but in terms yeah. of other things that are going on, yeah, lots and lots of Teams and Zooms calls with all sorts of people. I'm getting very square eyes and a bit of a flat bottom uh, from sitting there <laughs> hour after hour, just trying to be entertaining through a screen. Um, but yeah, lots are you moving around? Yeah, so Jules and I swap offices every other day. Um, to change the scenery because she's got her office on the top deck and mine's uh, in effect what was our dining room because I'm home now and I'm not normally um, so yeah she's been downstairs I've been upstairs today um, and it depends on who's got the more calls because uh, her office is quieter I've, downstairs I usually have the puppy with me you see um, yeah so there's a bit of that but then sometimes I do conference calls on the middle deck in our, our the other end of our bedroom where we've got the what was my little cinema room cinema with the sofa there um, oh, yeah. to, to change it up. Sometimes I go in the lounge. Yeah, it is, it is important to change it up. But fundamentally, I'm sitting down staring at a laptop screen or a monitor most of the day, one way or another. Yeah, I, I now probably sit in three different places in the flat in a day. And, and actually also depends on like what Kate's up to, because if she's got a load of prints to do, then I'll leave the bedroom slash study and come work in the lounge or I'll take calls on the sofa or I'll even sit on the bed if I've got a long call that I just it's kind of one of more of those kind of 
briefing calls rather than an engagement call and I can sit and just listen and take notes mm. um yeah I think moving around actually does help because I was I was finding like you that I was sitting at my desk for probably six hours and particularly because Kate is lovely she'll bring me like a cup of coffee and a piece of cake or something halfway through that lets you wouldn't even need to get up and go into the loo which wouldn't get up for like six hours so um um yeah I think it's uh it's interesting isn't it? it's a different way of working I was chatting yeah. to my friend who works at PwC this evening and um, we had kind of a B2B catch-up kind of thing. And he said they just can't see, he just can't see them going back to the office for years. No. Oh, um, I mean, I've, I've been doing a bit of work uh, with outside of bidding with uh, in the office fit out space, helping a couple of contractors figure out what comes next. And they're looking at co-working spaces, small serviced offices, you know, sort of hub, the, the, the spokes to, the major hubs and uh, it's going to be really interesting so yeah i think a lot of major employers will just halve their office space in cities and will get small service branded office spaces in towns commuter belt so people can work from home or work from one of those spokes or go into the hub for what they're talking about having is collaboration spaces so rather than having loads and loads of desks you'll just have meeting rooms and different types of spaces to collaborate because that's the yeah. only reason you'll go into the hub staff yeah. briefing stuff like that social stuff interesting any, anything that can be done at a desk why would you do that where you've got to go into london in a lift you know, who's going to want to get in lifts anymore um <laughs> it's, 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 you know, serious occupiers you know i've spoken to the two heads of real estate for two of the biggest banks in the country and you know they're, they're grappling with those sorts of challenges they've got loads of offices with loads of lifts in that no one will want to get in cool can you imagine if you're like in a 20-story office and you've got to get to the top and you, you just would you take would you take the risk of getting lifted or would you walk 20 stories up i'm not quite sure which yeah what and you've got to do it every day so or if you if you worked in town every day I was, I was talking to someone who works in canary wharf in a building where people normally queue for 20 minutes to get in a lift um oh. you know who's, who's going to be doing that anymore thousands of people <laughs> who work for the same firm in one building yeah it's especially good. if like this if you're going to have like two people in the lift now, I mean, you can, you just spend your entire working day queuing. Yeah, and you'd be um, you'd be pretty bloody selective about who that other person in the lift is as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, this this is the new form of discrimination, the COVID COVID um, COVID discrimination. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it sounds sounds uh, like a busy week then. Yeah, what have you got up to? What are you getting up to? Um. The usual is the honest answer. Some bids, some strategy stuff, some corporate pipeline bits and bobs. We're doing our kind of final steps of our um, redefine is the final step of our four step kind of COVID strategy. So that that the deadlines for redefine plans are middle of May. So we're kind of working through that at the moment. Got our must wins for the year. We've mapped those all out. Um, against you know the new backdrop of revised pipelines probability goes those kind of things mm. um and uh, so just getting some of the, the management in place to make sure that we keep our focus on those but no busy 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 um and uh maybe a bit more walking i don't know yeah get out there get out there with a dog <laughs> yeah i'm not going anywhere soon um but i am looking i am also trying to pin down some more interviewees so the elusive Baskar um and ashley from scribble talk may be joining a podcast soon 
Um, he's just sent us some dates which are very close to the date we are recording now, so we might have to push him back a bit. Mm. But next week, we are interviewing Josh Ellers from Patry, um, who I met at the BPC Europe conference. So um, founder of, of, of Patry, which is a kind of a bid scoring, bid no bid, no bid online tool, which I think mm. is quite an interesting concept as a business. Oh, we haven't. We didn't talk about APMP's new virtual online experience thing that they've they've launched. Maybe we can talk about that next time. That. Yeah, we didn't talk about this time, did we? No. Um, so, um, with that all being said, Jeremy, I think we've come to the end of the episode. Yes, thank you, mate. Good one, despite the beeps or goat noises. <laughs> um, have a good rest of your week, mate. Yeah, you too. Stay out of trouble. Catch you later. Thanks. And thanks for joining us uh, to all the listeners. Oh, yeah. Um, love your feedback on LinkedIn. Um, let us know what you think on the subject of challenging and um, what makes a, an excellent bid person. Yeah, please.